just thankful. I'm really thankful lately, just in life. I find out that there's a lot of stuff to be thankful for and just have this blessings upon blessings that I realize even in the small things. Um, and I want to thank all of you. You guys have been kind of on this journey with me of becoming a dad and realizing all this new stress and fun all at the same time. So I do, I want to thank you for all of the things you've done for my family this past few months. So I'm going to show you a couple pictures because that's why you're really here. This is my son, Judah. We're going to have a few of them just rolling through. So let's just get it out of the way now. I'm going to spoil this right now. I'm going to talk about my son a lot today. Um, I get to. He's shiny. He's new. Um, I get to talk to him as much as I want. Deal? for all of the food. Oh my gosh, how much food is in our fridge. My waistband has grown so much and my son doesn't let me run in the mornings. But this month, I mean, he was a month on Friday and uh, it went by so fast. I mean, it was like a blur. If you told me today, hey, you were just in the hospital yesterday, I would totally believe you because it's just gone by like that. But all of it has been so worth it. There are these moments of high ups when he smiles at us and we're like, look, it's gas and it's so exciting. And then there are moments like the past two nights where there are very low downs. You know what I'm talking about? My boy don't want to sleep. We were in the car, 12 o'clock at night, driving around for an hour. He didn't want to sleep. I'm pretty sure he's at home screaming right now. Hi, son. But there's something just worth it, right? When you look at that little boy's face, and some of you in the church got to meet him, so you know what I'm talking about. When you look at his face, it's just so worth it. I mean, I've never been so heartbroken when he's crying and laughed so much because he just looks so cute while crying. But thank you for understanding how things are moving a little slower for me at life, in life this mo at this moment. I know you would be way more interested to see Judah here in person rather than me. I know this because you tell me so. But as Sharon's recovering from a pretty hard delivery, we thank you just for the continued prayers. We recently just had family over. This is like the fun part of having a baby, I guess. I mean, he's great. I mean, I love him, like I said, love him a lot. But the fun part is seeing like my family members' eyes light up when they meet him for the first time. I mean, my parents came in and it was like they saw the promised child. They're like, oh and they just held him up. And then Sharon's mom came in, and oh my gosh, you would have think that this guy's next to Christ. He, she came in, she's like, oh, Moses. No, his name's Judah. But I'm telling you, we, we had all these great visits from parents, and they were just so excited. But there was this one that stands out in particular. Sharon's uncle came to visit us a couple weeks ago. He came in the evening, and he had to make the hour and a half drive, and he stayed for a total of 10 minutes. So I'm really thankful for that. But he comes, and he's just in amazement over Judah. And he looks at me, he's like, you got to get one of these. I'm like, I do. He's mine. But he said something while looking at him. He's holding him, and he looks at Sharon and me, and he says, cherish this moment. He said to cherish this moment because it will be like a sunset. It's beautiful to look at, but as beautiful as it is, it goes quickly, and you can almost miss it. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's crazy how time flies. Not just in our personal family life, but even in the life of our church. Today, I mean, obviously you're noticing the front rows are missing a little bit. Today, our students right now are at their final session of Lake Champion. This is our annual trip that we take every year, minus the past two because of the pandemic, where we take our CBU family up to Glens Bay, New York for a weekend at Young Life Lake Champion, designed to give them a space to connect with God without their phones, just them and God, and this community of believers to try and figure this all out. We've been going to this for years, and even when I was a youth student, when I was in sixth grade, I was going up to Lake Champion, and I've been going for many, many years, and for many, many years, students have said, this is my favorite weekend of the whole year. 
this is the first year in a long time that I'm not attending since I'm here, and I have to take care of my growing family at the moment. But let's look at a picture. This was them, my first trip I ever took with them six years ago. If you would have told me that I just started working here like a month ago, again, I believe you. And then this is them today. The youngest students have now become the oldest students and are graduating this year. It's been almost six years, and I remember almost every moment just like it was yesterday. But I think it was not that long ago that I was one of the kids, and I was going to Lake Champion. And I look at life, and I think of it, yeah, like a sunset. Beautiful, yet quick. Here I am now standing, preaching in a church where a month ago, literally almost a month ago, I stood here saying my wife could have a baby any day now, and now I'm up all night because I have that crying mon mon one month old. Life is quick, right? But we're always thinking about tomorrow still. Always thinking about what's next. And then out of nowhere, we have this moment, and we're looking back and thinking about, how did I get here? Right? James has something to say about this, talking about how life is quick, and talking about thinking about the thought of tomorrow, and thinking about who we are. Because let me tell you today, because how we look at our life today, and how we look at tomorrow says a lot about who we are. So now that I brought you to a moment of self-reflection, maybe internal panic, would you open your Bibles to me to James chapter 4? We've been in this story, uh, this, the book of James now for a few weeks, and I have to say, the more I read it, the more I continue to get out of it. And I'm beginning to see less of James as this book of the Bible that's just a few simple chapters, but I'm seeing it more as it was originally intended. James was intended as a letter to a church, a unified letter with an overall meaning. And as the letter unpacks, James begins to very sternly and directly tell this church the true way to find wisdom. I think we're all looking for a little wisdom. And James says the true way to found wis find wisdom is that it's found in the Lord. True wisdom is found in his ways, but yet the world is trying to pull us from that and give us this false sense of everything, right? The world's trying to do this cheap knockoff. It's like trying to give us this false sense of joy, this false sense of peace, this false sense of wisdom. Last week, Pastor Jimmy, through the help of some cupcakes, gluten-free cupcakes, helped us to realize that we cannot just be followers of Christ and then try to be followers of the world. It doesn't work that way. You can't say, I align myself with Jesus, and then go and say, I also align myself with the world. You can't do it. You can't have your cake and eat it too. And briefly, as the, he read a little bit of chapter 4 last week, he talked about this idea of humility. Humility is the foundation of true joy and peace and wisdom because it helps us to acknowledge our place in the world and our place with God. James goes on in the chapter to continue to talk about this idea of humility. And although we would like to say that our world is getting more humble, and maybe in some aspects it might be, I think we can make the case that many live more in a state of pridefulness rather than humility. The world and its pride has a way of trying to wedge itself into the church. It's a sad thing. It's heartbreaking. Pride is a tool of the enemy, and it's a powerful tool because pride, when given the opportunity to grow, always leads to division somewhere. When we are prideful, when a church is prideful, when a people are prideful, it leads to division somewhere, whether it's with each other in relationships, or even in our faith. And let me tell you now, church, that the enemy is trying to bring division into the church. Because if the church becomes divided, how useful can we really be? Let's dive in together. James chapter 4, starting in verse 11. Let's have some conversations. It says this, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it. 
but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge? Thanks, Becky. Might as well acknowledge it. Everyone was looking over. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge? There's something going on here in the church. Remember the audience that James is talking to. He's not talking to an unbelieving world. James is writing a letter to a church, and not only a church, but an early church that's being persecuted, and he's telling them, hey, even in amongst the persecution, even amongst all the pain and trials, you need to have joy. He's not talking to the world at large. He isn't talking to the unbeliever. He's talking to those who sit in the pew, or in this case, he's talking to the person who sits in the red chair. Up to this point, James has been reminding them how to pursue Jesus and holiness while fighting against this pressure of worldliness. If that wasn't as hard enough. We learn the church is having an issue with slandering one another. So James begins to address it. And we kind of can think sometimes, how can the church let this happen? Church is not meant for gossip and slandering. They can't be that divided. Just look online. Have you been seeing the reputation of the church lately? In different spots where the church is stepping up, it feels like every other week I'm reading about another pastor and its division or another church congregation and its division. Don't you see how division has come in? Somehow, along the way, the followers of Jesus somehow can lose focus on what the church is meant to be all about and begin to speak ill of each other, thus becoming more like the world. We put ourselves on this pedestal and begin to think that we make the rules and also are the judge of those rules, but that's not the true mission of the church. The church, even though on mission for God, allowed pride to come in and it began to cause real problems. So James is trying to address it. James keeps it real and he gives the church a reality check right in verse 13. It says this, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills it, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you, are bo- you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Quickly, James begins to lay out how we differ from God. He's putting us in our place. Here's humanity, and here is God. There's a huge difference between us and God, right? God has some kind of knowledge that we do not. The secret is he has all knowledge. Think about it. There are a few types of people when it comes to thinking about the future, isn't there? You have your your planners who are like, I'm going to plan every moment of my life, and I'm going to get to that goal. And then you have some people over here who are just more go with the flow. Hey, whatever happens next is what happens next. Come on, let's be honest for a second. Who here are my planners? Come on, raise your hand. You got some things planned. You got your life planned. You got some goals. I know there's a youth student here who's going to be president. Or for four more. That was for the camera. There you go, Matthew. We've got his whole life planned out. We have our whole lives planned out. We have colleges planned out. We have jobs planned out. We have plans for even our kids. How many parents do that? My son's going to be a drummer. I was just telling the band today. My son's going to be a drummer. He's going to help me and my wife be in a band. It's going to be great. We have all these plans. And then who are my go-with-the-flow type people? <laughs> Brian Michaels in the back, super smiling. Yeah. I like to think I have my life planned out, but I'm way more go with the flow. It kind of happens. I don't know how I got here. I don't even know how I'm preaching today. It happens. 
But it's funny because we have our planners who are like, I'm going to plan every single moment of my life to make sure that I have successful, to make sure that I have the money, to make sure I have the finances, to make sure I have the education. And then you have your go with the flow people who are saying, hey, whatever happens, happens, and hopefully it's going to work out in the end and it's all going to come out even anyway. But the reality is, no matter who you are, whether you're a planner or whether you go with the flow, we all fall to the same spot. Neither one of us, planner or go with the flow, knows what tomorrow holds. This is not going to be a message about if you're a planner, I'm going to tell you to lighten up. Or if you're, hey, whatever, I'm not going to tell you to get your act together. Because think about it. We make the plans, we make the tactics, we make the schedules and the goals and desires, and we have them even for our children and even for our family and our friends. But we have no idea what can interrupt it. Think about this just for a moment. Any one of us in this room right now can have their life radically change if your phone buzzed in your pocket and you got a message. Because we have no idea what that message would say. Right now, we can plan all of our steps, but none of us actually knows what's going to happen next. I don't even know if I make it to the end of this message. I hope I do because I like it and it's pretty long, so buckle up. But I know today after service, I'm going to go home. I'm going to try and take a nap. Going to go to Grace to see our students return from Lake Champion. And then my youth pastor and his family are going to come over for dinner and meet Judah. This is the plan. But I have no idea if that's actually going to happen. Right? James hits us with this huge dose of reality. And then he adds this line to it. What is your life? For you are a mist. It appears for a little time and then it vanishes. What is your life? You're a mist. It's quick. If you blinked, you miss it. We're all a mist. It isn't this lingering fog that we see in the mornings, but this quick moment that can be easily missed. And James gives this hard dose of reality to say, hey, we are ultimately powerless. We don't know what tomorrow brings. We are powerless to change it. And but a moment, we are just a mist. How many of you are glad you came to church today? Man, this is going to be a very positive message, huh? Why would James want to know? Why would James want to articulate this? Why would James want to write this letter? Is it to kick this persecuted church while they're down? Remember, you can't just take one verse as a standalone. You have to understand the whole context. You have to look at the whole chapter, the whole book, and how it relates to all 66. And remember earlier in chapter 4, verse 6, James tells us this, to protect ourselves from worldliness. He said, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And he says in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do you think there's something that God wants his followers to know? But the church, the people, all of us, if we were being honest, we have a way of becoming proud and arrogant. Putting ourselves in a place where we feel like we should be the ones to judge the world around us and those around us. And James gives us this hard truth that we are not all that. To truly be the church and to truly resist the devil and to truly go after joy that God has given us in each and every moment, it all comes back to humility. God is the one who's able to save and destroy. We are a mist. God is the judge, and when we humble ourselves, we see ourselves in the rightful place, in the rightful relationship with God. We see that compared to him, we are not all that. He is everything, and we are nothing, but yet he calls us to himself. 
And sometimes we like to play around with God. We like to tell him, well, this is kind of what I want for my life. So you pray those prayers, God, can you bless me this way? Or God, can you do this and do that? Don't you understand? It's like a third grader trying to tell a college professor how to teach their class. You're missing some stuff. We're missing some stuff. But humility is a weird thing, isn't it? It's kind of hard to grasp. Does it mean that we're supposed to deflect every compliment and never take credit for something that went well? I remember the few first few times where I was up here preaching and people would try and tell me, hey, good job afterwards. I wanted to be humble. So I had my standard answer that I'd say all the time, all Jesus. Thanks. Please don't. All Jesus. All God. Does that, is that true humility? Just deflecting every compliment, not taking the credit? Because it can be so fake. Can a person ever really call themselves humble, besides Jeremy Humble, I know it's your last name. <laughs> Can a person ever really call themselves humble? If I stand here and I brag to you how humble I'm being, is that really humble? I mean, I've thought about it. I've been like, oh, wow, man, I've been really humble this week. Wait, am I no longer humble? I think about that all the time. Can someone be humble and know that they're being humble? What does it mean to know true humility? Are you being humble just to be seen that way? Or are you actually looking for a life where you walk in humility? And let's be honest, too. Is, is there anyone who actually is in the room who thinks they're arrogant? No one wants to be known as the arrogant person. We all want to be humble. James is trying to refocus our lens and help us to acknowledge that we need God and he is greater than us when we lose sight of that, when we lose sight of the position of God in our lives, we quickly become arrogant. So how can a person truly become humble? To truly have humility, what we have to do is what James does, and be realistic with ourselves and have some true self-awareness. It's knowing our strengths, but also acknowledging our weaknesses. See, the church is made up of many people. The church isn't a building, but it's a body of believers coming together, and as Crossbridge, we know this well, don't we? Our church has seen many different versions over the last three years, and yet we still remain the church. Do you know how thankful I am that we meet in a school? It's a constant reminder that Crossbridge is the people, not the address. Our mission isn't for us to continue to build up the name of Crossbridge, but to continue to spread the story of Jesus to all people, inviting them to worship with us for the glory of his name and not our own. Amen? In order for this to happen, though, we must work together. We must be unified. This is exactly what James is reminding his churches to do. They have to work together and be united, not judging each other, but working alongside each other. And this can only happen if we're humble, examining our own lives in the light of God and not each other. To work with each other, we must have some kind of self-awareness of our strengths and weaknesses. Paul talks about this very thing, about knowing your strength and knowing your weakness in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says this, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. We were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? 
If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of, in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Paul is painting a picture of how the church needs each other. If we were all strong in the same exact areas, we wouldn't survive. But if we all come to the table with this awareness of our different strengths and our different weaknesses, we will easily see that we were meant to complement each other. I look at our staff and I see this so clearly. I'm not by any means organizational or logistics. Right, Becky? I'm not organizational. I'm not good at getting back to emails. But Becky is. We complement each other. And rather than fight to try and make myself organizational, I ask her for help. I lean on her for help, and I lean on her for her strengths. I even think about the youth team. who this, has This year, the youth team has stepped up more than ever. We have taken more kids to Lake Champion this year than we ever have. But I could not do that on my own. We need other people. I have people like Eric who are willing to help plan all of the travel and logistics to get our, pla- to get our kids to places like the champion. And even now, I stand here as someone who wanted and needed to be here to take care of my family this week. And we have a lead pastor who is more than willing and glad and excited to take our students like champion when I couldn't. This is what it means to be part of a body, not judging each other, yet leaning on each other in the different areas to accomplish the goal that God has set before us. And James is echoing the same idea that when, th- when things get hard, when trials come, and we don't become like the world, we choose not to get divided. Things are going to get hard in life. Persecution will come, trials will come, bad days will come, but if we stick together, the church won't divide. I mean, look at the world. Turn on the news just for a moment. The world is so divided on everything. We can't be that way as a church. And I'm not talking about just Crossbridge, but I'm talking about the church globally. When it started, it was one thing. When you would reference the church, everyone knew what that meant. Now, anytime I tell someone I go to church or I'm a pastor, like, oh, what kind? What denomination? Well, what do you believe in? The church should look different. We are not meant to speak ill of each other, but build each other up. Like James said, who are we to judge? On church, I'll be honest, I'm guilty of this. I've judged those around me. I've questioned much. I've argued much. I've slandered. I spoke ill, and I was wrong. It's sin. And I know so clearly that it divides the church. Crossage, we're called to love one another, aren't we? Who am I to judge anyone? But then again, who are you to judge anyone? We can disagree on a host of issues. Me and Danielle disagree on like almost everything. We run and talk and debate. But we're still part of the family of God. If we get divided, even on the big issues, we're probably lacking humility somewhere. True humility is knowing that we need each other. But unfortunately, too many people want to do do church and faith on their own. You understand that struggle? I think we all can relate to that. I get it. You guys see me as this bubbly, fun, energetic, loud person. I'd stay home anytime. I'm being real honest with you. When plans get canceled, I'm like, yes, I get to stay home and play video games. Not anymore. It's a dream about video games. <laughs> 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 
but it's like a big trap. We think we have to do it all on our own. And we'd be better for it, right? The world tells us you got to be independent and you got to be able to do it on your own and have success on your own. No, God's telling us we need community. That's what we're for. Community is what he desires for us so that we can lean each on each other for our strengths. And when I'm weak, you can pick me up. And when you're weak, I can pick you up. Crossbridge, let me tell you that this means there's more to our faith than attending on a Sunday morning. It's more than being a face in a crowd, but it's coming together and sharing one another's burdens. Coming and let others help you in your weakness, all the while helping others in theirs. But I feel like I need to talk about the other side of pride, right? We're talking about pride saying, I don't need to do it on my own. I don't need anybody else. And I'm too strong for this. I don't need you. But then there's this other side of pride that's rarely talked about. Humility is not merely acknowledging your weakness, but realizing that God is bigger than your weakness. I like the way C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. But so many of us get stuck in that first one. So many people, so many people think that humility is thinking of themselves as too weak. We are great at either thinking we are so awesome and nothing can touch us, that's arrogant, or we think of ourselves as worthless and that God can't use us. That's also arrogant. If you're always the hero of the story, think about it. Analyze your, your, your days of the week. If you're always the hero of every work story, or if you're always the hero of any story, and it's only going to be great if you were there, I'm sorry, that's arrogant. But if you also are the cause of every single failure, and you think that the world and other things would be better without you, you're also battling arrogance. Arrogance and pride aren't just thinking we do not need God, but it's also thinking that we're too messed up for God to use. Let me tell you today that God is bigger than your pride. God is bigger than your greatest successes, and God is bigger than your greatest failure. He loves you and desires to know you. Amen? I remember years ago, I was working at a church in Atlantic City. We were talking about baptisms. I had a, a, little, a little youth room with about five or ten students. And we're, we're talking about baptism and how if you want to dedicate yourself to God, you will align yourself with him in baptism. It's an outward symbol of your faith. And I had this one student. She raised her hand. And she told me that although she believes in Jesus, she can't be baptized. I was like, well, why? When I asked why, she said, I have to get things with, right with God first. So let me start to go over it. Well, what, what do you need to get right with God? What, what's, what's going on? And it wasn't sin issues. It wasn't like she didn't actually care about Jesus. She loved Jesus, and she was getting to know him more and more every day, but she kept battling this thing that she's too messed up for God to ever actually love her back. That's heartbreaking. But I've learned the older I get that she wasn't alone it wasn't just in Atlantic City. More and more, even here in this church, I've encountered people who are saying they are too messed up for God to ever use. So they're going to stay in this moment of being stuck. They'll come to the Sunday mornings, they'll sit in the seat, and they'll worship, and they'll sing along, but they can't fully devote themselves to God because he can't ever use them because they're too messed up. There's too much baggage. They made too many mistakes. They hurt too many people. It's too much for God. James, remi James reminds us that we're in control of nothing. And God can redeem and speak into all things. You're not too messed up for God. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, God desires you and God wants to know you. You're not too messed up for him. And when we gather together, loving one another, worshiping together, going after this together, we realize that we're not alone and God uses the community to help pick each other up. 
right? This is the glory of this season. In a few weeks, we're going to celebrate how God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to take our place on a cross. And this is where we look to find our joy. Joy is found in humility because it shows us that we needed the cross. True humility is acknowledging that we need a savior, and he modeled it. Right? Jesus models humility so greatly because he humbles himself and takes death on a cross for our sake. All week long, I could not help but think of those few verses about planning. Our life is a vapor. It's quick. And that's something I can't stop thinking about this week. Even last night, I was driving in my car, and I was just wrestling with that. A vapor? A mist? Then what am I doing? In James chapter 4, he, is he saying we should never plan anything? I once knew a guy who anytime he would say anything about the future, like, hey, you going to lunch? He would say, Lord willing. Hey, man, see you tomorrow at work? Lord willing. Hey, are you going out with your friend? Lord willing. I said, Dude, you didn't let me finish the sentence. But he wanted to guard himself from being boastful and arrogant. I understood the motive, but that is not what James is saying. James is not saying that we have to add this little tagline to everything we say. Oh, yeah, I'm going to go to lunch later, Lord willing. He's not saying that. You can. It doesn't hurt anything. But that's not what he's saying. He's talking about the lens that you view your life in. Back in verse 14 when he says, what is your life for you are a mist? I'm telling you, I can't get that out of my head. James isn't telling us to add a tagline to our life, but to view faith as one life all the same. Pastor Jimmy said it last week best, you can't have your cake and eat it too. And that's true. We have to think that we can focus, we can't think we can focus all in the world and then have our faith. We can't do that. Our faith is supposed to impact our world, not be compartmentalized into certain days or activities. Our faith should be all-encompassing. James is not saying don't plan. James is not saying don't go to lunch and don't have vacations or plan to provide for your families. God loves when we bring order to chaos. He wants us to have our lives in order for him and to him. But it's just that. We realize that everything in this life is a vapor. It's quick. So if we saw life through the lens of a mist, if we saw life through the, the, the lens of, hey, this could be quick, what would your real focus be on? We get so worried and concerned and bent out of shape over mere moments when the reality is it's all going to go quickly. We have to look at our lives and be honest with ourselves. What are the things that matter at the end of the day? All of us, whether we believe in God or not, will, whether we agree that he's God or not, we will agree that life is flying by. It's going quick. When we look back, what will have actually mattered? Think about that for a second. I've been reading the book of Ecclesiastes over the past few weeks. It's not a good book to read when you're wrestling that life is quick, just so you know. It's this book written by King Solomon. He's the richest, wisest king to ever live, and he writes about life. This is the wisest guy to ever have lived, and he writes about life, and he basically writes how everything is meaningless. Well, then what am I doing? He, this guy acquires riches on riches. He built more kingdoms and vineyards. He had women upon women to the world. He's the pinnacle of success. But yet he writes how everything's meaningless, and he found no joy in any of it. He says a, a couple of things that we really need to take to heart. He says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And he's talking about God. 
He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to end. All of us have quick life here, but what about eternity? What remains? What is it that truly matters? Solomon was a man that was truly trying to have his faith in God, but also live how he wanted and didn't work for him. So whether we acknowledge it or not this morning, eternity is in our hearts. This life will go quick, but what happens with the next? What we do now does impact this next part. Towards the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, he comes to an amazing realization. King Solomon writes this at the end of his life. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The wisest, richest man to ever live looks back at his life and realizes his priorities and his wealth and his riches were all out of whack and comes to the conclusion that when all is said and done, the only thing that remains is God. This is James's point in chapter 14. He compares and humbles us to God and helps us to realize we are missed a quick moment. We don't know what tomorrow brings, but we can have hope in the one who's eternal. We can trust in the one who knows all things. And we can lean on the one who's all-powerful. Let me tell you today, his name is Jesus. He really puts everything into perspective, doesn't he? Even right now, I truly don't know what happens next. If my life is truly a vapor, if it's truly a mist, what will I say? What message even now would I try to convey? Our faith isn't just a moment, but it's everything. And it should impact every part of our lives. When we go on vacation, it should be because we're drawing closer to our family which brings us closer to God. We go to work, we should be showing how we do things with purpose and care because we represent a Savior. Whether we eat, sleep, or drink, or whatever we do, we should do it all for the glory of God. And James' desire for the church and for us was to humble ourselves and realize that we all need Jesus because we can't do it on our own, but yet he loves us and meets us in the mess. I love how the chapter ends. In James chapter 4, he ends it with, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. I've come to learn over the years that usually... We don't really have to convince ourselves what the right thing to do is. Nine out of ten times I'm meeting with a student or a parent, and we're talking about what, I, what do I need to do. You guys already know. Anytime I go to counseling and my counselor's like, well, what do you think you need to do? Man, I just spent 130 bucks to hear myself talk. It's good. But usually we know what we have to do. When we humble ourselves and put ourselves in reality and put ourselves in the right perspective, that the one that James is bringing us to, we realize it's all about loving God and loving others. When we love God and love others, we are right in the line with what Jesus desired for the church. Many people are searching in life what they're supposed to do with their lives. The truth is we all know it, to love God and love others. When we don't do these things, we fall into the trap of the world. Church, life is quick, a vapor, a mist. It's here one moment and gone the next. Let me ask you, what are you doing with your moment? If this was truly my last moment with you, if I really viewed life as a mist or a fading sunset, what would I say? I would tell you that God is everything, and Jesus truly is real life, and now I stand here thinking of my son, and I think about it. He's one month old, and I'm reading about how life goes quick. That means if I'm a mist, so is my son. 
What's the one thing that I need him to understand? If I only had a mere moment with him, if my life is a mist and his life's a mist, what do I need him to get? What do I need him to understand? I need him to understand there's more to life than worldly success and being on top more than sports or even school because that's it, right? We get on this rat race. We get on this treadmill. And we're like, I got to do better. I got to do parents. Our, our parents are hoping we do better than them. And then we get here. And we're all stressed out and pressured. But we finally get to some pinnacle of success. And then we look at our kids and we're like, hey, you have to go farther than I did. But that's not what I want him to hear. I don't want him to be the hero of his story. I don't want his priorities to be all about him and circle around him and his world and his idea of success. I need my son to understand that he cannot earn eternal life on his own, but there's someone out there who loves him so much more than I do, which is kind of terribly hard to even fathom. That somebody out there sent his one and only son so that he could save my son. That at the end of the day, Solomon, who was the richest, wisest man to ever live, lived, got his life wrong, but right at the end, he gets it. Everything boils down to fearing God and obeying him. Who am I to judge? Who am I to think that I don't need God? Because I need him more than I need anything in life itself. So what about you? If we are all a mist, where are your priorities? Where's your hope in? Where are your cares? Don't keep pushing God off into tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow brings. I'm sorry for the downer. But sometimes even when knowing we have no control, it brings true freedom because God's a lot better at my life than I am. So today, maybe we need to take a real look at our life and humble ourselves. Maybe today, you need to have that car talk. You know what I'm talking about. We all have those talks in the car. And you got to say, God, I need you in this moment. Maybe today you need to confess and repent because you realize you've been slandering the church instead of plugging into it. Imagine how the church would look and act if we all humbled ourselves, leaned on each other, feared God, and obeyed him together. So when you look at this life, what will you do with your moment? It's a mist.